This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.christchurchsouthphilly.org. Please turn in it to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. And then once you get to Psalm 51, fold the page or keep your finger in it or put a marker there and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. We are going to be in two different parts of Scripture this morning as we continue in our series, The Story Behind the Song. And 2 Samuel chapter 11 is the story that's behind Psalm 51. And as you turn to those places, I'm not sure if you're like me, but in my childhood, I regularly found myself in situations where I was like, how did I get here? (laughs) How did things end up this way? One example, of which I could cite many, but one example would be when I was eight years old, there was a convenience store near my house that I wasn't allowed to go to because I was eight years old, but they had these soft pretzels. And not like the Wawa soft pretzels. These were legit, real, good, soft pretzels. And I love soft pretzels. And so one day, I just couldn't stand it any longer, and I snuck out of our house. I went to the store and bought one of those delicious twists of doughy goodness. But instead of eating it at the store or eating it on the way home, I wanted to enjoy it in the comfort of my room. And so I went back to my house, went into my room, and began to feast, only to be interrupted by my mom walking into my room. She looked at me with my cheeks stuffed full of soft pretzel and said, where did you get that? My mind began to race. What kind of story could I tell her about how I was given this soft pretzel by someone that would not get me in trouble because, you know, I'm not allowed to take food from a stranger. And so, like, you know, in a flash of a second, I say, Mom, I was out front in the front yard, and I was playing, and this nun walked by. Now, it's not completely out of the ordinary because we actually did live somewhat close to a convent. And so I said, this nun walked by and she had a dog and I started to pet the dog and interact with her. And she thought that I was such a nice young man that she gave me a soft pretzel that she just happened to have with her at the time. My mom looked at me and said, boy, go tell that story to your father. (laughs) And so I did. I doubled down. And, uh, and I told my dad the same story. And for some surprising reason, he didn't believe me. <laughs> the next thing you know, I'm being grounded not only for buying a pretzel at a store that I wasn't allowed to, that also I bought with money that I'd stolen from my parents. Because uh, I was eight years old. What kind of eight-year-old has pocket change lying around? I certainly didn't. My parents didn't believe in giving an allowance. They're like, hey, if you live in our house, that's all the allowance you need. We'll make you not pay room and board. How's that sound? Do your chores. And so I had no money, so I'd taken their money. I'd lied. I'd stolen. And I ended up being grounded. And it was the middle of summer. And so for the next two weeks, I had to go with my dad to his office which was so boring, he had me like sorting pencils, and, and, and my friends were out swimming and carrying on and having a great time in the summer. And I just remember sitting in my dad's office, being like, how did things end up like this? How did I 
get here. As we get older, we can continue to have those moments. And sometimes they are funny. Another time I'll have to tell you a story about how I got stuck in the middle of a two-story floor coming out of a window. Um, that's another story for another time. So sometimes we can have these funny moments where like, how did I end up here? But sometimes those moments are not so funny. Sometimes that question, how did I get here, is the question that we ask after we've made some terrible choices. And those choices and the consequences they have created have started to come out. 2 Samuel chapter 11 is a story where David is making some terrible choices. Some choices that will certainly have some significant consequences in his life. And yet, in the midst of this dark period of his story, God has a beautiful thread of redemptive grace that he pulls and weaves and eventually leads to the writing of one of the most beautiful psalms of repentance and confession that we have in all of Scripture, Psalm 51. And so I've entitled this morning's sermon, From Ruin, which is 2 Samuel chapter 11, to repentance, which is Psalm chapter 51. From ruin to repentance, God's guide for lasting change. And before we read God's word together, let's bow our heads. More importantly, let's bow our hearts and invite God to speak to us through his word. So let's have a moment of prayer between you and the Lord. Now please pray also for me that I would speak in a way that is helpful to you and most importantly faithful to God's word and glorifying to his name. God, we are here to hear from you. Please speak to us. We pray in the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. 2 Samuel chapter 11. I'm going to read verses 1 through 17 and then skip down to verses 26 through 27. This is God's holy inspired, authoritative, and inerrant word. God says to us, in the, year of the, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rebah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. They saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. She came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house and the woman conceived. And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send to me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Job was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. 
Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house. And there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. And when they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go down to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of the Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he might be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Look down now to verse 26 through 27. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent her and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. May God be with us through the reading, now the preaching of his word. We start in 2 Samuel 11 with seeing the road to ruin. The road to ruin. David's sin here is heavy. He used his position of power and authority to coerce Bathsheba to sleep with him. We need to be very clear that this is not a consensual act. In an article written for the Gospel Coalition, Richard Davison writes this, Just as intercourse between an adult and a minor, even a consenting minor, is today termed statutory rape, so the intercourse between David and his subject Bathsheba even if Bathsheba, under the psychological pressure of one in power over her, acquiesced to the intercourse, is understood in biblical law and so presented in this narrative to be a case of rape, what today we call power rape. And the victimizer, not the victim, is held accountable. David has abused Bathsheba. And then to cover up his sin, he eventually has her husband killed so that David can take her as his wife and no one will know what he has done. Friends, this is dark. This is, this is heavy. But we need to notice that this story doesn't start with a lot of darkness and heaviness. The road to ruin never starts with a big sign that says, 
ruined this way. No, it starts with small, subtle compromises. Little choices that end up leading over time to big falls. David's sin started in verse 1. When it says, it was the time of year when the kings go out to war. Springtime in the ancient world was known as invasion time. The weather was nice, and so it was easier to move your troops around. And so in ancient times, this is when a king would have to go out to war to protect the borders of his country. Because in that time, a king was not someone who was supposed to stay in a palace, but someone who was supposed to be leading the charge. And David was the king. And so where was David supposed to be? Not in Jerusalem, but out with his troops. But here, he is neglecting his God given responsibility. And it seems just a small, subtle compromise. And it's not hard to see why he felt that he could make this compromise. If you are familiar at all with the book of 2 Samuel, or if you want to read it later on this afternoon, you'll see that in the preceding chapters, it's just story after story of David's victories. Right As we come to chapter 11, what, what has happened is that God has blessed David and used David to bring Israel into a place of prosperity that they had never seen before. Yet, instead of his prosperity leading David into even more dependency on God, David has gotten full of himself. He is taking God for granted. He is assuming, of course, God will give us another victory. I don't even know, need to go out and fight. I, I don't need to do what God has told me to do. God's just going to keep the blessings rolling. Romans chapter 2 verse 5 says that God's kindness to us, his goodness to us, is meant to lead us to repentance. It's meant to keep our hearts soft and leaning on him, turning us away. That's what repentance is. Repentance is turning away from the temptations of the world and turning to his righteous ways. That's what God's goodness should produce in us. But sometimes in our sin-twisted hearts, we can get used to God being good to us and start to feel like, I deserve this. I've earned this. Of course God should just continue to be good to me. David's sin started by him taking God for granted. And then because he was taking God for granted, he ended up being where he should not have been. The only reason that David was in the place to see what he should not have seen was because he was in a place that he should not have been. He was out on the rooftop, which being in the king's palace was the highest rooftop around, and he uses that vantage point to become a peeping Tom. Some have erroneously said that, well, Bathsheba's at fault. She shouldn't have been bathing outside. That's a misunderstanding that in those times, everyone bathed outside. Right? Like, it's what you did. And they had these high walls around. And so it would have been very private to all her neighbors. The only one that, who could have seen her was the king who was not supposed to be at home. But because David is not where he's supposed to be, he ends up closer to sin than he should have been. His temptation to sin came from his proximity to that sin. His temptation to sin came 
from his proximity to that sin. In his best-selling book, Atomic Habits, author James Clear talks about how our choices don't just come from what we want, they also can come from where we are. He cites the example of a hospital who wanted to influence what people drank. They wanted them to stop drinking soda because soda leads you to end up in the hospital if you drink a lot of it, and they wanted them to drink more water. And so what they did is, instead of telling people to drink more water, they knew how futile that attempt would be, they simply moved where the vending machines were. And they put all the water vending machines near high traffic areas, like the exits and entrances, and they moved all the soda vending machines like way out of the way. And so what happened? What happened is that water sales skyrocketed and soda sales plummeted. Not because they told anyone anything, but because they changed people's proximity and their access to things. Friends, David is an example of this kind of behavior long before James Clear wrote about it. David made the choice to look because he was close to it. His temptation came from his proximity. Often our temptations to sin just come because we are so close to it. And so friends, I just want to encourage you, if there's a persistent temptation in your life, stop trying to just resist it and be strong and start getting away from it. Maybe you're here today and you need to start learning how to not stay where you are and just be stronger in that place. You need to start learning how to change the places that you are. You need to start learning how to change the habits that you have. Maybe you need to get rid of that smartphone. Maybe you need to get rid of some browser access that you have. Maybe you need to start doing some things to create some distance between you and the temptation to sin. David had taken God for granted He was getting close to sin by not being where he should have been. And then he stays there. He looks and he lingers. And he gets curious. I wonder who that woman is. How often sin is fueled by a curiosity about sin. I'm not going to do it but I just want to imagine what that would be like. Just lingering in our minds. Maybe lingering with glances. Cultivating unrighteous desires in our hearts. Friends, here's what we need to understand. That what we linger on in our minds and our hearts will eventually come out in our actions. Our inputs will always have outcomes. As Proverbs 6.27 says, Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? If we don't flee from sin but linger on it, if we keep inputting these things by feeding our mind on these things, by, by, by cultivating these desires in our hearts, friends, we, we carry things that can hurt us close to us, eventually they will burn us. Our inputs will have outcomes. But David just sits there inputting these lustful glances, and he eventually then leads to the outcome of sending for her. Notice his servant very kindly tries to stop him by drawing attention to who this woman is. Look what he says in verse 3. The servant says, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Notice what is happening here. The servant names her. 
David had been looking upon her as an object. But the servant is reminding him that she is a person. She's an image bearer of God. Someone who is worthy of dignity and honor, not leering in lust. He's saying this is Bathsheba, Eliam's daughter. Eliam was a soldier in David's army. Eliam was a faithful man. This is Eliam's daughter, and this is Uriah's wife. Not only is Uriah one of David's soldiers, but in 1 Chronicles chapter 11, we see that Uriah was part of a group of 30 men that were known as David's mightiest men. And Uriah, in 1 Chronicles chapter 11, personally saves David's life. The servant is appealing to David. Think about who she is. But David is just consumed with what he wants. And so he detaches and he depersonalizes and gives in to his lustful desires and he sends for her and he sleeps with her and then he finds out that he has impregnated her. He seeks to cover up what he has done. He tries to get Uriah to come back and sleep with his wife. Uriah won't do that because like, how can I go and enjoy comforts when all these soldiers are out fighting? Notice Uriah is much more righteous than David. <laughs> he then tries to get Uriah drunk, but Uriah still won't do it. And so David refuses to confess his sin. And friends, when we confuse to confess our sin, covering up our sin always leads to it getting worse. Think about it. If David had confessed his sin and owned up to sleeping with Bathsheba, he would have committed adultery, which is certainly a significant sin. But he would have been kept from murder. But he thought he could hide his wrong. And that choice led him to do even more wrong. And so friends, the road to ruin, it can take so many different kinds of winding paths, but these are the general steps that we're seeing illustrated to us through the life of David. The road to ruin is, is taking God for granted. It is not being where you should. It is lingering on sin instead of fleeing from it. And it is hiding our sin instead of confessing it. And at this point, the story could have been over. Friends, this story could have stopped in verse 27 where it says that this sin displeased God and God wiped David out. God owes David nothing except judgment. But instead of God letting David live in his sin and then die in his sin and experience eternal judgment for his sin, what David had been unwilling to confess God exposes because what is done in secret is never hidden from the Lord. And so in God's mercy and in God's love for David, he exposes his sin in order to rescue him from his sin. And in chapter 12 of 2 Samuel, God tells the prophet Nathan what had happened, and Nathan goes and confronts David. And when Nathan confronts David, David had a choice in that moment. 
He had already committed one murder. He could have committed another. He could have killed Nathan and put an end to this person who knew. But instead, David is broken as he realizes that God is mercifully intervening in his life. Friends, I just want to appeal to you that if you've ever had that moment where your sin has been exposed, don't run in shame and harden your hearts. No, come even more into the light. God is not trying to shame you. He's trying to rescue you. David is broken. He realizes that God is rescuing him. And so he turns to God in repentance. And from that place of broken repentance, he pens the words of Psalm 51. And so let's go through Psalm 51 together. I asked you to mark it. Please turn to it as best you can. We are not going to stay this morning in the road to ruin. By God's grace, we're going to see the steps he gives us to repentance. Psalm 51 starts by saying this in verses 1 and 2. This is David speaking, and he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Notice what David is not doing here. David is not saying, God, I'm going to do this for you. No, David is saying, God, I need you to do this for me. David is coming and asking God for mercy. And friends, the path to repentance always starts with turning to God for mercy. David doesn't come trying to make bargains. If you forgive me, then I will. If you do this for me, then I will do this for you. As if God could somehow be bribed to overlook our wrongs by us just doing enough rights. No, David comes and asks for the only thing he could possibly ask for. He comes and asks, God, have mercy on me. Now, is David right to ask God for mercy? It's actually a pretty outrageous request if you think about it. What kind of God would show mercy to a rapist and murderer like David? Shouldn't we be outraged at God's injustice if he dared to answer this cry? I think we should. If it were not for Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 26. Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 26 has been called by many theologians as the key that unlocks the entire Bible. It's a crucial passage in which the whole story of the Bible is explained. Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 26 says this, For all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. 
This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Friends, we need to understand that if God had simply swept David's sin under the rug, we should feel outraged. If God had just arbitrarily decided to show mercy to David and to blot out his sin, meaning removed it, that indeed would be a grave injustice. But that is not who God is. What this passage in Roman is telling us is that the reason God passed over former sins, meaning the sins that happened before Jesus came, the reason that God passed over former sins, the reason that David was not a smoldering patch of stained concrete struck down by the holy fire of God, the reason that, that God had passed over that former sin was not by turning a blind eye to it, but because he knew he would send Jesus to suffer for it. You see, David would have gone to the temple and made the necessary sacrifices for the forgiveness of his sins by slaughtering the lambs and bulls as prescribed in God's law. But all those sacrifices were IOUs. <laughs> the blood of a bull or a lamb could never take away the sin of a person. And that's why they had to be continually offered because they were never fully sufficient. But as God passed over all those former sins, he was now by no means sweeping them under the rug. No, the receipts of those IOUs were all adding up. So that when Christ came as the great and final sacrifice, and as he gave his holy life on the cross to pay for sin, what is happening on the cross is that Christ is not only paying for the present sins of the people that were there, he's not only praying for the future sins of you and I, but he's paying for all the past sins of those who had placed their faith in the coming Messiah. See, friends, salvation has always and only ever been by faith. David looked forward with faith to the mercy of God that was to come. This is a prayer of faith as he says, God have mercy on me. He is looking forward with faith to the merciful act of God. And for us, we look back with faith and see the merciful act of God. But we all meet at the cross of Jesus Christ, which stands at the center of all time. And it's the cross of Jesus that is the only place to which sinners can go and cry out, God have mercy on me. And we can make that cry because at the cross, God's justice for our sin was executed on Christ. We can make that cry because at the cross, God did not sweep sin under the rug, but instead counted our sin as against Christ. We can make the cry for mercy because at the cross of Jesus Christ, God is justly judging sin while also making a way for sinners to be given mercy. And so friends, this is the counter-cultural message of the Bible. Our world says when you mess up, 
you need to do X, Y, and Z to make things up. But the Bible says when you mess up, there is mercy for you in Christ. And this is where we start on the path to repentance. We don't first start with what we're committing to do. No, we start by looking at the mercy of Christ and what God has done for us. The first step of repentance is turning to God for mercy. For mercy for our sin. This is the second step of repentance. We need to see our sin as our sin. Look what David writes in verses 3 through 6. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you might be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Notice, David is not blaming anything or anyone else for his sin. He's saying to God, you taught me wisdom, but I turned from it. Your words are justified, meaning they're right, they're good, they're true, but I decide to do what is evil. He says, my sin is before me. He's saying, this is my Not that he wallows in self-pity, oh, I'm such a terrible person. No, it is seeing his sin as his sin that sends him running to God for mercy for his sin. See, seeing our sin as our sin is not meant to lead us to self-condemnation, but instead is to take us to Christ and his great mercy. In order to receive God's mercy, we first have to see our need for God's mercy. And we won't see our need for God's mercy if we are making excuses for our sin. David doesn't say, well, she was bathing. He doesn't say, my servant shouldn't have brought her. He doesn't say, I was so tired from the previous wars. He doesn't say, I had a bad night, a bad day on the job. He doesn't bring up anything from his past. Well, because this happened to me, Of course I had to now act in this way. Now this does not mean that situations are not necessarily tempting. This does not mean that things from our past can't be part of shaping us. Our experiences in life can shape us in all kinds of ways. We need to understand they never excuse us. It's very important that we have a very clear distinction in our minds between explanations and excuses. There might be things from your past that explain why you are tempted to sin in certain ways. And you might need some help to work through that. And praise God for the work he can do to heal us from hard things that have affected our lives. But explanations are never excuses. Just because you had something from your past that might predispose you to be tempted to sin in certain ways, that explanation is not an excuse. No one makes the choice to sin except you and you alone. And so what David is saying here is he says that my, my, this is my sin. He's really saying the same thing that Jesus says in Mark chapter 7 
when Jesus says that our sinful actions come from our own sinful hearts. Friends, we can't blame anyone else for our sin except the person we see in the mirror. And that's not meant to lead us to condemnation, but instead send us running to God for mercy. Friends, if we are always victims of our sins, if we feel that we have no choice but to sin in certain ways, then how can we ever hope to change from that? But if we see that our sin comes from us, then we can change. Why? Because God has mercy for us. Praise the Lord. And so if you want to see change happening in your life, then you need to start making, taking responsibility for the choices you have made. You need to see your sin as your sin in order to know the merciful Savior you have for your sin. So we need to turn to God for his mercy. We need to see our sin as our sin. Third step, we need to see our sin as against God. Verse 4, David says, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight? Now, by saying that his sin was only against God, David doesn't mean that he hadn't sinned against people. He had certainly sinned against Bathsheba. He had certainly sinned against Uriah. And the consequences of his sin, if you go on to read 2 Samuel, actually end up hurting his whole family. Chaos comes into David's life that can all be traced back to this tragic choice. There are so many people that David had sinned against. And so we shouldn't read this as him denying that. But what he is saying is that in his sin, he sees it as first and primarily as against God. Why? Because God's the one who gives us life. None of us choose to be here. We're all brought into existence by our creator God. And so when we use the life that God gave us to live in sinful ways Ultimately, our sin is against God, the giver of our life. And I think it's important for us to see our sin is against God, or we'll never experience lasting change. Because if we see our sin is, first of all, well, it hurts me. Sure, our sins can hurt us. But if we're only going to change because of the consequences we are experiencing of our sin, we might feel sad about the consequences, but that will not produce lasting change. Because as soon as the consequences of sin are removed, we're just going to go back to the way we were before. And even if we go one step further and consider how our sin affects others, which is a good thing to do, we should see how our sin affects others, and we should feel deep sorrow for that. But if that's the only source of our sorrow and desire to change, that also will not produce lasting change. Because after the initial sting of everything has passed, that person that you were so sad about hurting, guess what? They might do something to hurt you. It might not be as bad as what you did against them, but none of us are perfect. And so if our changed behavior is dependent on us feeling sad about how it affects others, over time, friends, it is always easy to justify sin against another sinner. Because at some point, they're going to sin also against you. And so the only way to have true, lasting change is when we see our sin as first and foremost as against God. Because God is perfect in love and beauty and faithfulness. 
He has never done anything, nor will he ever do anything to hurt us. All he does is shower out an abundance of grace upon us. And so when we see our sin is against him, friends, that's not something that we ever move on from. That's why David says that his sin is ever before him. You see, even long after the consequences of our sin are gone and the heart that we have caused others has faded, if we see our sin is against God, we'll remain soft in our hearts. Because we'll be so grateful for his mercy towards us. And so the steps of repentance are turning to God for mercy. Seeing our sin as our sin. Seeing our sin as primarily against God. And step number four, embracing our dependency on God. Verses 12, 7 through 12, David writes, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you're broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. In all these things, David is asking God, God, I need you to do this. He is expressing dependency. God, I need you to purge me. I need you to wash me. I need you to hide your face from my sins. I need you to create a new heart in me. I need you to cast me not away from your presence. I need you to restore to me the joy of my salvation. David is expressing his utter dependence on God. God, I can't, but you can. And so I need you. Friends, God's presence, his nearness to us, is most profoundly experienced by us when we finally arrive at the end of ourselves. You see, we can't be full of ourselves and full of the Lord at the same time. In order to experience God meeting us in our need, we need to admit that we have a need. In order for God to be felt as near to us, we need to realize that only God can give us what no one and nothing else can. David's saying, God, I need your presence to be with me because it's being with you that washes me. It's being with you that creates a clean heart in me. It's being with you that renews a right spirit within me. It's being with you that leads me into the joy of my salvation. He's saying, cast me not away from my, your presence. Because no one and nothing else will do. He's saying, God, I just want you. David is crying out from a place of broken dependence upon God, realizing that what he most profoundly needs is a deeper nearness to God. How often we pursue change by focusing on what we feel like we need to do. The practical steps that we need to take. Now, there might be practical steps that we should take. But friends, we need to understand that God's not created us to be human doers, but human beings. We are made to be with him. We are made to be dependent on him. And in that place of dependency, we are made to be fully satisfied in him. And that's how he changes us. 
I love how Pastor John Piper writes about this in his sermon on Psalm 51. When he says, why isn't David crying out for sexual restraint? Why isn't he praying for men to hold him accountable? Why isn't he praying for protected eyes and sex-free thoughts? The reason is that he knows that sexual sin is a symptom, not the disease. People give way to sexual sin because they don't have the fullness of joy and gladness in Christ. Their spirits are not steadfast and firm and established. They waver. They are enticed. And they give way because God does not have the place in our feelings and thoughts that he should. David is showing us by the way he prays that our real need is Christ. And friends, we can substitute sexual sin for any kind of sin that we can struggle with. What we need to understand is that all sin is a symptom of us not being satisfied in Christ. And satisfaction in Christ comes from us seeing our need for dependency on Christ. The more we see our need for Christ, oh friends, the more we realize that we have a great Christ for our need. And so repentance comes from turning to God for mercy, from seeing our sins as our sin, from seeing our sins against God, and then from that place of brokenness, embracing our dependency upon the Lord. And then the final step that we close with this morning comes in verses 13 through 19. Final step to repentance is when it just doesn't stay with us, but it's us being willing to be used in our brokenness. Step five of repentance is being willing to be used in our brokenness. Friends, what God has done in us, he does not want to stay with us. Verses 13 through 19, David writes, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from a guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So the good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and the whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. You see, David here, he wants to teach others about what God is like. He, he doesn't want to teach others about how to be great like him. No, he wants to teach others about how great God has been to him. He's like, hey, if you remove my blood guiltiness from me, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to sing about your praise. He's not content with just himself being made clean. He's not content with just having his own relationship with God restored. No, he wants others to come to know God's great mercy. He wants others to, who right now in that moment might have been trapped in sin to come to know the beauty of being broken before God. See, friends, when we allow the shame of our sin to silence our lips, we are robbing God of the very thing he has given us to share most powerfully about him. The story of a Christian is never how great we are. It's always how great he is. 
The story of a Christian is never about how we have it all together. No, the story of the Christian is always about how God can take the broken pieces of our lives and use them to create a beautiful mosaic of his redemption and grace. And so you might have made a mess of things. You might have gone long and far down that road to ruin. But friend, you need to hear today, God is not done with you yet. He might have broken you. But that's because he loves you. And in his love, he still wants to use you. Your story is not just for you. Your story is the story that God wants to tell through you to touch the lives of others. And I'm not saying that's in a public setting where everyone hears this and they think they're like, oh, I need the mic next week. No, I'm not saying come up and get the microphone. Maybe it's just one-on-one. Maybe it's just one person that God's going to send along your path. I don't know, but the point is what this psalm is telling us is that we are not to hide what God has done for us. What this is saying to us is that we should refuse to live in the shame of our sin, but instead tell the story of God's redemption and grace. And so as we come to a close, I think there are a variety of ways we can consider responding. Maybe you are here today and you see yourself somewhere on that road to ruin. I believe God has you listening to this because he wants to interrupt your journey. I believe God has given you an off-ramp today that's going to come through you confessing your sin. And not just confessing your sin to the Lord, which yes, we should confess our sin to God, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But James 5, 16 says, confess your sins to one another so that you might be healed. That's not because anyone can do anything about your sin. We can't. But we can point you to the Savior who has forgiven your sin. And when we just stay in that place of like, I'm going to confess and just keep it between me and God, guess what? It's still hidden. And you're not going to feel the full healing that God has for you. The way that we experience truly turning from our sin is stepping into the light and confessing to one another the wrongs that we have done so that we might be reminded about what Christ has done and the forgiveness that we have in him. And so maybe there are people here today that before the day is out, you need to grab a a godly Christian friend, a brother or a sister, and you need to tell them, I've got this going on and I need your help. Please pray for me. I'm sure there are some people listening that right now God has you listening to this because he's trying to stop you as you go down that road of ruin. And then maybe there are others here today that you are trying to take steps of repentance, but you just feel stuck. Maybe you feel stuck, and maybe it's because you have not fully seen your sin as your sin. You feel stuck because the reality is you've been excusing it by using other things. Maybe you're stuck because you've been seeing your sin primarily as against people instead of against God. Or maybe you feel stuck because you have a story of something that happened that You've actually never shared with others. Listen, I don't know what God is speaking to you, but I do know that God is inviting all of us to come to him and once again be refreshed and amazed by his great mercy for us in Christ. And as we experience his great mercy, it's experiencing God's great mercy for us in Christ that leads to true and lasting change. Let's bow our heads.